I didn't even check the battery by. Is it okay? Let's start. Any any prayer request tonight? <clears throat> yes, I have two. Oh, good. What? Yeah. Um, the first is for my dad. He's in the hospital. I think he had a heart attack. Oh, I'm sorry, Karen. How old is he? 84. 84. Yeah. And the second is for um, a co-worker's wife who had surgery for cancer last Monday. She, all I know, I don't know what type of cancer, but she, it's a recurrence from six years ago. And they expect to get the results tomorrow or the next day. And it's not treatable with um, chemo or radiation. Yeah. What's your dad's name? Dick. Dick. And he's 84, you said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and your friend's name? Silmar. Short for Sylvia Marie. Sil the color Silmar. Silmar. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anybody else? Barbara, we're going to put you in your prayers whether you want us or not. <laughs> Anybody else? Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, and particularly the gift of yourself at the Mass this morning. Um, um, both of them were calls to um, take the law seriously. Um, the elders accusing Susanna um, when they should not have, and um, and um, the judges calling the adulterous woman to task. Um, Christ sent them away back to the law, I think, um, but asking them to um, carry a greater spirit of mercy and sent the woman back saying, don't sin anymore, so it's not like he released her from the law. But he brought a great spirit to what he did and hopefully um, it changed the lives of both those groups and I ask for a special blessing on all of us here in Lent um, in our struggles to live you, um, to take seriously your commandments, your law, um, but to bring um, your mercy uh, with the cost of it across. Strengthen us, please, to grow inwardly in those virtues. They're always beyond us. We, we can't get them on our own. And we can only get them with you. So help each of us to stand more fully in you, um, knowing you defeated evil. We can't on our own. You did. So um, help us all to stand with you in that trust, um, each of us growing closer and closer to you and to each other in all we do. I ask for a special prayer for Barbara tonight, Grace. Um, to heal her. Um, wonderful heart. She just had an operation in <laughs> almost two consecutive days in church. She didn't stay away. Um, she was there, even though she had a hard time being there on Sunday. Um, help her heal and continue to strengthen her in your courage. Um, let her know in all of this, your presence. Um, ask a special blessing for Karen and her dad. Um, 
long time with him. So it can't be easier for her to feel that time shortening. Watch over her father, Dick. Uh, be with him, help him to recover from his heart attack. Your will, not ours, um, whatever will be done. Whatever happens here, help Karen um, be strengthened in her heart um, to be glad for her father, um, whatever sorrow she feels. And um, bless her friend, um, again, your will. Um, if she can recover, help her recover. Um, meanwhile, um, let what's happening to her be an occasion for growing in her strength, her faith in you, and let it be so for Karen um, and those um, friends of that woman, um, particularly close ones. Um, death is all around us, more and more constantly. Um, we're getting older. Um, help all of us to grow inwardly, um, to become more fully the person you've given each one of us to be in all the years that we've had. And I ask for a special grace on the readings that we do for the help they offer, um, for the ways they help us to see ourselves and always you at work. So enlighten our minds, strengthen our hearts and um, in all that we're doing in this work. We are... Did you want to your sister? Who oh, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, you guys. I um, We saw Tom and Linda a week ago, and Tom lost his sister, and um, they were undecided then whether they were going to travel back east, northeast, to, um, or not, and I haven't talked with them since, but I, I know it was a little bit of a shaky um, time for Tom. So for Tom and Linda, and especially um, his sister, Carol, receive her into your kingdom, and wash away her sins, um, <laughs> we know from Dante, uh, having our sins washed away and memories of good things recovered, let all the good that she did strengthen the joy that she'll feel in your presence. And if there's time on purgatory, let our prayers help. We offer these prayers in you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, can you all pull out your Ash Wednesday piece? Um, I'm going to just quickly... Uh, that was, I think this is one of the, I didn't think I had a couple of things on my mind, Tracy. Are we losing you? Are you here, Tracy? <laughs> um, I'm not going to go through it all, but, um, but we went over that opening passage, and I really so enjoyed your, you know, your offering of the, of the independent clause. Um, I just, I want to just recall to mind what I think is going on in that, because it's so easy to misread that first section. You remember that he's not saying, because I hope never to turn again, or because I hope not to know again the will, the mind. He's not saying that. He's saying, I do not hope to turn. I do not hope to know. Um, he does not hope to turn 
why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual rain? Why should I put so much attachment to things that are going to go? The usual rain, you know, those in power, whatever they are, um, they're going to go. We know that from Boethius, we know it from our lives. Um, because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. All of us have positive moments. Or I think we do, most of us do. Um, but they're fleeting. They're here and gone. Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think he goes on and on. Um, consequently, or because I cannot hope to turn again, consequently I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice. He's got, if my reading of this is correct, he's got to get past those illusory appeals to hope we make in this world. Because so often we hope for the wrong thing. I gave that those examples last week. In a, in a post-Christian world, when the Christian virtues have disappeared, faith, hope, and charity... We, I, I'm going to mute you guys. Somebody's just a, if you guys want to come on, don't hesitate, okay? Um, because in a post-Christian world, the, the language of the Christian Middle Ages has um, become debased. What we do is um, bring Christian supernatural virtues down. We temporalize them. I hope I get a bike for Christmas. I hope I can go out with him. I have faith in you, George, or whoever. You know, I love you, um, Judy, or, you know. We use those words so easily, and we've lost the sense that they're transcendent gifts and carry burdens with them. To have hope when we don't have any reason for hoping, to have faith when we have no reason to have faith, to love when we don't have a reason to love, those ask things of us beyond our human capability. They come from Christ. So those are, they, they, and by the way, they speak so directly to the play we're about to read. So anyway, um, um, Tracy, we, um, the, the line that I offered, and it was um, partly yours and mine, but I, I so enjoyed your, your thing. Because I do not hope again, I surrender my will to Christ and his church. Something like that. Because I do not hope to know, I surrender my mind. The poem is about, I believe this more and more the more I read it, the poem is about entering that dark night of the soul where you can no longer take comfort from false hopes or false faiths or false loves. That we're to enter the dark night of the soul where we give up everything and find Christ there. I want to read um, a passage. I, I think I told you guys. I can't remember if I did in a, in a note. This is a section from the second poem in the Four Quartets, East Coker. And it speaks directly to what's going on here, but it's from a different perspective. So, But I think it's why I think it's why I, these opening lines have the meaning that I'm suggesting that they do. He cannot hope to turn again to things that won't answer. In the middle of um, East Coker, the second of Eliot's quartets, you can pull it up 
or you can just read. It's just a very brief section that I want to read to you. Section 3 goes like this. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors, all go into the dark. And the dark, the sun, the moon, and the almanac of Gotha, and the Stock Exchange Gazette, the directory of directors, and the cold sense and lost the motive of action, and we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there's no one to hug, no one, sorry, to bury. I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings and a movement of darkness on darkness. As we know that the hills and trees, the distant panorama, and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground, underground train in the tube stops too long between stations and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the um, growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when under ether the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you're not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. He goes on. You remember the poem. Anyway, let me pick this up now. Um, remember in the second section to Ash Wednesday, he describes the lady with the leopards, and it's a, it's a, it's a recollection of the scene from... Um, Ezekiel, when God has called Ezekiel to uh, prophesy um, to the house of Israel because it's lost its place. And um, Ezekiel describes the house as these dead bones, all of them in the desert dying. And he prophesies to them and they all find their life and recover their life. And Israel recovers its place with God. But there's those interesting descriptions in that second section where um, he talks about the... Um, the leopard eating out his heart and his liver and all those things, the hollow round of my skull. I, I mean, I, 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 my, I may be speaking for myself here, but I know that there's sometimes, you know, when um, when we invoke God, to, the, the the invocation the last week has been, and give me a new heart, give me a new heart, middle of Lent, give me a new heart. And I think there's some sense that. <laughs> We, we need to be completely changed. The, the, the legs, the liver, the skull have to be eaten out. <laughs> we have to just die to everything in order to be brought back to life. That's what happened to Christ on the cross. Everything died. So the, the images there are all telling of this, of this moment when the Spirit breathes in 
to these bones and um, they receive life again. And then remember in the third section, it, the allusions were to Dante in the Purgatorio going up the stairs and Elliot looking back, struggling with the devil of the stairs who wears the deceitful face of hope and of despair. And takes the turn in the third stair. Remember, he, the, the woman is an allusion to Beatrice, but in Elliot's case, she's not named because he's not specifically talking about Beatrice. He's talking about whoever that person is who helps us through life, whoever, whoever that is. And it's, here it's, it's a woman, and I think importantly so. Um, he continues to climb the stair, lilac and brown hair, distraction, music of the flute, stops and steps of the mind over the third stair, fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair, climbing the third stair. It's as if the climbing goes on. Lord, I'm not worthy. Lord, I'm not worthy, but speak the word only. That's the moment before receiving the Eucharist. So that's where the third section ends. The fourth section, I'll just read it um, with no comment, um, and then we'll start with, um, I'll give a quick review of uh, Lear. The fourth section, who walked between the violent and the violent, who walked between the various ranks of varied green, going in white and blue in Mary's color, talking of trivial things in ignorance and knowledge of eternal dolor, sadness, who moved among the others as they walked, who then made strong the fountains and made fresh the springs, made cool the dry rock and made firm the sand in blue of Larkspur, blue of Mary's color, Sauvignon Vos. It's the Spanish for um, be mindful. By the way, it's we're doing the um, Purgatorio in, at uh, Seas, and we're at that point where Dante meets with the other poets. It's a beautiful section. Um, we've been talking about sight and recovering sight and memory. Um, and Dante meets Daniel Arnott, who was one of the um, Provencal poets, and whom Dante looked at as a father. And the opening lines of one of Don, um, um, Arnett, Don, Daniel, Daniel, Arnett, that poet, <laughs> one of his opening lines was, be mindful of, um, and Dante recalls it there, Eliot's drawing this line from that poem, be mindful of. Here are the, Danielle Arnott, sorry, Danielle Arnott. Here are the years that walk between, bearing away the fiddles and the flutes, restoring one who moves in the time between sleep and waking, wearing white light folded, sheathing about her folded. The new year's walk, restoring through a bright cloud of tears, the years, restoring with a new verse the ancient rhyme. Redeem the time, redeem the unread vision in the higher dream while jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse. The silent sister veiled in white and blue between the yews behind the garden god whose flute is breathless, bent her head and signed but spoke no word. But the fountain sprang up and the birds sang down, redeem the time, redeem the time, redeem the dream. The token of the word, unheard, unspoken, till the wind shake a thousand whispers from the ewe, 
and after this our exile. Five will begin, if the lost word is lost, if the spent word is spent, if the unheard, unspoken word is unspoken, unheard, still is the unspoken word. <laughs> I hope everybody hears the double meaning of still, because it means still going on, but it also means still motionless. It's an image from Boethius' circle. You all know that. So. That's the middle of Lent. Okay. Um, oh, God. I'll be right back. Hold on. Quickly, a quick review of Lear. Um, one of the most important things that I wanted to do in our reading of Lear was set it against the backdrop of modern criticism. Um, as I suggested last time, most modern critics read Lear as a poem showing the meaninglessness of life. It's a nihilistic view, they say, of Shakespeare's. I don't believe that's so. Um, and I made the case, I'll come back to it in a minute. Um, um, Tracy, I know these things mean a lot to you, and I, I can't, I think the audio's online, and it would, I think you'd probably enjoy it, but I will cover some of the major things here. Some of the most important themes of Lear, that there is a nature and a law to nature. Um, half the characters in the play know it, half act as if they don't. Cornwall says he can make the law what he wants. Cordelia, or I mean, uh, Goneril says almost the same thing. She will do what she wants. The theme of fortune, um, all the, the constant allusions to the wheel of fortune, they run through the whole play. Up and down, Kent in the stocks, waiting. Um, Edgar, biding his time, suffering until things turn. Um, the theme of externals and trappings, um, people taking their identity from what they wear. Um, and the sins they cover up because of their exteriors. Um, one of the most important themes of that play and every play I think we've read are the two settings. And I want to read something in a minute, but just to flesh that out. Most of Shakespeare's really good works involve two settings, almost always. The second setting is a way of bringing in a perspective that serves as a critique, a judgment on the main action. Remember in Merchant of Venice it was Belmont that provided a, a critique of that whole economic commercial regime world. Um, in um, All's Well That Ends Well it was Italy. Helena had to go to Italy to bring something back to France. Um, in in uh, Winter's Tale it was Bohemia we had to go to that Arcadian world to get back to Sicily, that sophisticated Renaissance world. Um, in Lear, it was the Heath. And I suggested, and I want to come back to this, I'm going to read something in a second here. The Heath is like the still point in Boethius' circle. What, what, what Shakespeare's done is take that, taken that concept and given it a, dr a dramatic form. When people leave the circumference, when they leave that 
social-political world of intrigues in the castles, they take refuge in the heath. It, it's a world of impoverished people, of the marginalized, um, who don't have the things that the people who want power have. So um, it's there that people come to see who they are, what they've not taken care of, the ways in which they don't know themselves, and um, it's the movement from off that circumference, from the world of political intrigues, into that state of impoverishment, um, self-sacrifice, loss, that they come to a new identity of themselves. And what happens at that time is, is um, made clear by that um, phrase of Edgar's, madness, reason in madness that when people move off that center, they lose their orientation, the way their minds have been shaped. And anytime anybody's lost that, we all know it. There are moments of disillusionment. We can't find ourselves. Everything we thought we knew shakes. And um, we feel like we're slipping into a madness. It's what Socrates called the, remember the Elenctus and Aporia, that moment of perplexity when somebody questioning us forces us to rethink things. It was at the heart of the whole Socratic critique. Every one of Socrates' dialogues turns on that moment. So the two settings is always going to be important. It's, it's absolutely crucial to Pericles. The second setting in Pericles, I think, is the sea. Remember in Love's Labor's Lost and All's Well That Ends Well, no, um, As You Like It, the second setting is called a green world. It's the world of the forest, of the woods. We saw it in uh, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. The lovers had to go into the forest to escape the penalties of the law. So there are all these settings that function to show there's another world, something that's throwing a light on our world that helps us to see it differently. In Pericles, it's the sea. We'll, we'll get to that in a, in a bit. Um, and I left everybody with questions about was this a Christian play or a non-Christian um, in my in my judgment it's a deeply Christian play and there's a value in setting in a non-Christian world because it, 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 it helps people to see that the world doesn't depend on externals or historical literal liter, literal in this literal literal mindedness you know our tendency is to be too literal-minded and we may make judgments. Um, by setting it in a non-Christian area, Shakespeare can reinforce the sense that there is a law to things, a nature, and more importantly, Christ is present in Christ-bearing people, the self-sacrificing kinds of acts they do. If you take Edgar and um, Kent, Cordelia, the king of France, and if you take Lear with his change out of the picture, there would be no good at the end. It, it, it would be a horrific ending. Um, but it isn't. We, um, um, good people um, defeat bad people. And Lear and Gloucester undergo tremendous changes. And even Edgar has a strange kind of... Edmund. Edmund, sorry. Has a strange kind of peripatia turn. So... Those are some of the uh, some of the major things um, that we covered in Lear. I want to read from this something that I've I'm in a something I was writing. 
just to try to make this clear. And it goes to my point, and it goes to Karen, very much directly to Karen's question, because if you remember at the very end when Lear is looking at Cordelia, everybody thinks he's mad, and it's one of the reasons we have to question what that word means as it applies to Lear at the end. If he is mad, what does that mean? Um, I'm likening the action of Lear to that still point, that the still point gives us a way of understanding the circumference and the still point, and in a Christian world, the cost of getting there, because we know the cost of the still point is a cross. It's suffering. Okay. Um, the greater number of characters are situated on the circumference at the beginning of the play, but slow, even Lear and Gloucester for sure, but slowly and painfully a small handful draws away from it to the heath to become outcasts and agonists. The community that comes to life there takes on a still point character paradoxically in its losses and renunciations and the self-discoveries that go with them. While the heath community forms, all the evils that are initiated at the start of the play begin to unravel to get answered by a number of converging realities, all from the circumference and all being drawn towards a center, bringing with it a power and authority for judgment. Everybody gets judged at the end. Albany, Kent, Edgar are men who carry on their work largely in separate fields of action and under circumstances requiring different rational strategies. Each one of them has a different mindset, doing something different. They do their work with no expectation of divine help for their efforts, yet what drives each of them is a different form of virtue or goodness. A goodness is at work in the play, diffusing itself through what these men and others do. Boethius's word, bonum diffusivum, bonum est diffusim sui, goodness is diffusive of itself. That's pure Boethius. Bonum est diffusivium Sui. Goodness is diffusive. For that reason, I've argued forever, tragedies are never bad. Ever. Aristotle made that clear. At a good, in every good tragedy, the evil is answered. It's overcome. Because goodness is always greater than evil. It will always. Remember, according to Boethius, I think it's correct on this, it makes no sense otherwise, evil is a privation. It can never defeat God. God is always at work bringing good out of evil. Um, so um, this, the play ends on this note of goodness. It's not, it's not the goodness of a, of a comedy, but it's good. The evil is answered. To claim that what happens in Lear is unjust or nihilistic, then, is to completely miss the governing intuition of the play. It's to assume either the position of Job's friends who maintained that Job's losses or misfortunes are signs of his sins or failings, or the position of those on the circumference who act on the belief that satisfying their appetites, lust, desires for wealth and power, will bring them happiness when everything in the play shows it won't. If we approach the play from the perspective of Boethius's image, there's simply no way to describe the end of the play except in terms of an amazingly bountiful but tragically costly good. All the evil characters receive their just deserts. Lear and Gloucester undergo anguish purifications. 
They both experience a profound spiritual growth in self-knowledge and both die relatively free of the sins that they never dealt with in life. More amazingly, on hearing that he was loved, Edmund says at the end, I pant for life, some good I mean to do despite mine own nature, and sends men to spare Lear and Cordelia. The fact that the goodness of which I'm speaking is focused on Lear should not prevent us from seeing its greater amplitude or pervasiveness. From the veiled Christian perspective informing the play, the violence that Lear experiences can also be seen as a severe mercy. It's one of those Socratic turns. Lear is a king, and the suffering he brings on himself and inflicts on his people prepares him and his people for a special wisdom. Everybody shares in that suffering. The mercy, or the Socratic turn, makes evident the violence that someone as noble as Lear, along with those he governed or raised, has to experience to be shaken free of a tragic, self-righteous pride with all of its twisted and buried instincts towards power and lust. Lear's... Karen, I want to hear your thought on this too, because I've got you in my mind on this. Lear's look there, look there, at the end may be an expression of an exhausted longing for the daughter he'd come to love dearly and whom he thought he just lost. It may also be a glimpse of Cordelia on the threshold of the next life. I'm presenting this seriously, because everybody thinks he's mad. Um, it may be a glimpse of Cordelia on the threshold of the next life. We have no way of knowing with any certainty which it is. Because remember, he's saying, look there, look there, at her lips. From the world of the circumference, she's dead. From the still point pointing towards a transcendent order, she may be alive, breathing. If Lear's there, and he's been granted that, he can see something nobody else can. Everybody would think he's mad. Here's my point, and this is crucial, and this goes so to a question of faith. This partly expresses, the, in my mind, the genius of Shakespeare. Because what decides the issue? Reason or faith? When you're at that still point and faith and reason meet, how much of what you're doing is dictated by reason alone? How much by a reason imbued with faith? I want to read that again. We have no way of knowing with any certainty which it is. But because of the notion of reason in madness introduced by Edgar, as he hears Lear stripping himself of his illusions and acknowledging his sins, there's greater reason for assuming the latter than the former, that through his suffering, Lear has been granted a vision of spiritual realities that those who've not endured as much simply do not have. He sees a goodness in his madness that those who are sane, who are still close, too close to the circumference defined by the world, cannot. If the goodness of which I speak is real and involves a cosmic divine order, it should come as no surprise that it's all the more so for being unseen or only partially seen by the few agents through whom it's brought about. So, um, so we know from all the readings we've done, and particularly with tragedies and comedies, that all good works of literature have these moments of recognition. What they mean vary. 
Lear is a poem about a play about excruciating suffering, horrible suffering. And it's it should be a serious question for all of us. What depth of vision of good um, does that suffering bring one to? From all we know from Christ, remember the moment of um, the transfiguration and um, re recall Dante when Dante went into the heavens. What did Christ see? What did those who followed him see in heaven? Um, um, Paul says we can't describe it. It's indescribable. It's too great a joy. Okay, let me stop. That's the, that's the review. Um, I want to go to Pericles, but before we do, I want to take any questions. Um, Karen, you may have still one about the lips and Tracy. You're not going to get out of this, as Fred said. So, any questions about any questions about Lear before we leave it? Carl, Jeannie, you have a question. Jeannie, I do not believe you. Not for a moment. Tracy. By the way, I enjoyed your note that, you know, when you wrote back and you said you read it and, I don't know, you've been putting things together and it sounded like you really enjoyed the play. That, uh... Yeah, second time around, I made more sense. <laughs> um... I don't. I don't know that I could. I have a question. Uh, I. It stopped making more sense the further I got into it, second time around. Um, so I, I kind of understood the Heath, but after that, um, I understood the scene between Lear and Cordelia when he was looking at her mouth and. Mm -hmm. uh, but not I, anyway. So it's interesting to hear that that framework. Um, and then at the end, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, "What? You know, those three guys are left, and like one, they're just going to go their separate ways." <laughs> and the second time um, I read it, it was more. Uh, I don't know what the right word is. Contemplative, maybe that they were expressing to each other what they've just been through, but I still don't understand what they were saying. <laughs> yeah. I could just get a better sense that they yeah. were relating to each other. If I can put this on a pragmatic level, Tracy, just to focus on that for a second, because I'm Shakespeare's endings are amazing, like his beginnings. I mean, a whole action is gathered into that last scene, but two, two thoughts had come to my mind in, in light of the whole text. Albany was in charge, I mean, trying to pull things together, but he turns rule over to Edgar, knowing that he will be a good ruler. I think the supposition that we we have right now, because the the rule should have gone to Lear, but he dies, you know. So, and I think in in actual history, Lear survived that moment um, and ruled. If I'm I, I may be misremembering this, but. In Shakespeare's play, he dies. To me, it's really telling. Albany's been a good man, a good servant, 
Um, Edgar, if he does rule, will rule well from what he's learned. I mean, I think one of the one of the things we take away from the ending is these men have been so chastised. They have learned so much. Think about the um, Jews when they came back from exile. You know, I mean, to take an example, or America after the Civil War. Um, um, but the Jews give a good example because once they lost their freedoms, they took seriously their call by God again. Um, it, it's short-lived because we saw what happened again and again, but I think the assumption we have here is that Edgar will make a good ruler, Albany will rule well in, in whatever domain he has. And it's, it's, to me it's so wonderful to have Kent go off because he says he can't, he's got this journey. My own sense of that, because he loved Lear, he was a faithful servant, and he's seen the king he loved die, and he's watched the grief of his king with his daughter. So there isn't anything that's escaped um, Kent. He's experienced it all. He's born it in his heart. My sense that he's going on a spiritual pilgrimage. He, I mean, I think the word contemplation is perfect for him. Edgar's going to go back and rule. He has a sense of evil. He's going to be far more guarded about who he trusts, you know, having gone through what he did with Edmund. So... It just seems to me that a whole community, as, as Shakespeare presents it, has grown in wisdom from its losses, the war, you know, that they just lost. So, yeah. it's a, to me, it's a sober um, wisdom. It's a, it's a, it's a wisdom that's come from crucifixions and sufferings, and so the the, the people who will rule will. Um, will be far more capable, far more able, far more sober in what they do than Lear or Gloucester, saying. Did you? Yeah, the English won the war. I mean, sorry, the English, sorry. Yeah, but they're not, yeah, thanks, Doc. They're not going to be arrogant having won a war. I'm sure lots of foot soldiers were because lots of people are not going to know what we know, but... Um, so it's a chastised nation, the rulers will be better. You know, it's just, to me, it's a really fine ending. Um, anybody else? Anybody else? I keep wondering if America, where we're going, I know that's a big concern on a lot of people's minds. I mean, they're just problems everywhere in America. Um, leadership. Um, where will we be in 10 years, 15 years, um, but, okay, Pericles. Um, where did I? T.S. Eliot, <laughs> this is interesting, we we're reading Ash Wednesday, and T.S. Eliot had this to say about Pericles and the last romances. He said, the characters in Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, The Tempest, and Pericles are the work of a writer who has finally seen through the dramatic action of men into a spiritual action which transcends it. He got that from Dante, among others. Dramatic action in the ordinary sense is inadequate for making these emotions perceptible 
Shakespeare tends, therefore, to simplify his characters, compare Pericles as a character to um, Lear. He's infinitely simpler, um, less complex. He tends to simplify his characters to make them vehicles for conveying something of which they are unaware. In a poetic drama, we are lifted to another plane of reality, and a hidden and mysterious pattern of reality appears as from a palimpsest, something set on another. Something is exhibited of which we've only had rare glimpses in our daily life. Um, Pericles belongs to that group of plays called romances. If you look at a Shakespeare anthology, he's got the... sorry. Sorry. You're supposed to say something. Thanks. Thanks. Sorry. Um, Cymbeline, Winter's Tale, The Tempest, sometimes Twelfth Night, um, and Pericles. We did um, Winter's Tale um, because I, ha I happen to believe that it's I think it's in so many ways his greatest play because it has what I would call a sacramental element and I believe Pericles does too. So um, with Pericles we're in that group of plays that Shakespeare wrote at the end of his life in which he's exploring what most men like Lear at the end would say is improbable. These things don't happen. That, that another order of reality enters in to the time of the plot and something strange happens and it always, almost always, involves a strange kind of recognition. Pericles is another variation of the Job theme. Everything is taken away, just as with Lear. Everything is gone, lost, but it's given back again. So it's his reworking of the Job thing. Okay, we saw it in Winter's Tale. We saw it in Anthony and Cleopatra when they discover a real love between the two of them. When they lose everything, we see it in Lear. Except we don't see we don't see things given back. Depends on how we read that look there, look there moment. But the central theme of Pericles is the Job thing. That everything lost will be returned. The difference is, um, and it's a major difference, is that in Shakespeare, when these things are given back, um, it always um, coincides with a moment of recognition. Something is seen. Winter's Tale, Leontes discovers his daughter. Perdida, that which was lost is found. Remember, that was the oracle. He will, he will uh, be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Perdida, his daughter, whom he intended to kill, is returned. There's that glorious, extraordinary end. So it is here, in Lear. I mean, we can say he's lost her and it's nothing, you know, he's mad, or he's seen something that other people don't see. The, the 
play Pericles begins with Pericles. I'm going to say, I mean, I'm glad for anybody, anybody to take this up if, if you want to disagree. It seems to me that Pericles begins with something of a kind of understated arrogance. For a man to put his life at risk to solve a riddle to marry a woman? And so the beginning of Pericles um, is reminds us, is parallel to Oedipus. Oedipus solved the riddle and was made king. So it seems to me there's a little bit of an edible pride here. And I mean, I, I, he doesn't have Lear's pride, not even close. But for a man to, to put himself in a position where he can lose his head, I mean, if he doesn't get a real right, suggest not a lot of humility to me, but, but, he, but he doesn't show his arrogance the way Lear does. We're in a different world in Pericles. Lear is a poem about titanic emotions, absolutely titanic. Thunder, heath, storms. Pericles is a quieter, a spiritually quieter play. It's about suffering and patience and bearing with things. That Wheel of Fortune is one of the prominent images again, um, but we're watching a man go through the ups and downs, the you know, the turns of fortune um, with patience and courage and a spirit of endurance. And um, what happens at the end is um, appropriate that because of his patience and his endurance, his willingness to lose everything, to trust, everything's given back. It's a little bit like the um, Job story, except in my mind it goes farther. Um, um, because it shows in details what he has to lose, and it does something Job doesn't do. Pericles sees, he, he doesn't know the truth intellectually. It's not an intellectual thing. It's an actual perception of the music of the spheres. Nobody in literature, as far as I know, has had that, um, has had that experience. It seems to be one of the a couple of the big questions of the work, and we'll come back to them after I we go through some passages here. Um, the Shakespeare, or the Pericles plot is played out against a series of regimes, a number of regimes. It, we can almost say the the play is as much about regimes as it is about Pericles, because we have to watch him engage with these, Thais, his wife, and Marina, his daughter. Um, so Shakespeare is saying something about political regimes and their nature. It seems to me what he's showing us is that um, what happens on the wheel of fortune concerning individuals also happens with regimes. Father Flynn used to say this over and over again. Regimes come, they go. Regimes get proud and arrogant, they collapse. They're just as susceptible to turns in fortune as human beings. And that's what we're watching in this play. Um, it seems to me one of the questions we're meant to ask, I don't want to get an answer, but I'll, I'll come back to it, is um, what's the source of nobility? Can nobility be taught or is it bred? And in Shakespeare's world, how much of it depends on an aristocratic or a monarchic regime, that there's a king or a lord who's good. 
in this world we see that only the virtuous prevail and only those re regimes that are good prevail. What does it take to be a good leader, a good ruler? And interesting what happens at the beginning of this play is Pericles has to step down as a ruler because of the let's say the foolishness of that opening act. He puts his life in danger and his people are in danger. The only way he can protect them is to leave. So some of the major some of the major themes. The father-daughter theme is absolutely crucial to this play. Absolutely crucial. And we've seen Shakespeare preoccupied with this. And, and I, I, I want to I take a minute with this and I'd be glad to hear your thoughts. The father-daughter relationship was crucial in Merchant of Venice. Jessica eloped. She didn't get her father's obedience. Portia did nothing that wasn't done in obedience. Desdemona eloped. She died. That'll killed her. Helena, her father was a wise doctor and it was through his wisdom that she could cure the king. Leontes had a daughter. He wanted her dead. The play ends with her being returned. Lear's daughters, two of them were cruel. One of them, an extraordinary loving person. Pericles has a daughter, he loses her, thinks he does. I'm going to come back to this. The two settings, there are all these political regimes, they're all set against the sea. So the sea is the second setting, like the green world of the comedies, um, or the forest, or the heath. What is the sea? Remember, all of these regimes are played off against the sea. The sea is the backdrop to all of them. What is the sea? Um, what, what does it help us to see in these regimes? And maybe even something beyond. The Wheel of Fortune again. The sexuality theme couldn't be more obvious. Antiochus is um, in an incestuous relationship with his daughter. He doesn't want to give it up, so he makes this law to make it impossible for men to take her away from him. Marina will go to uh, Matilene and be sold into the brothels. And she will convert them all. Um, the miraculous. Strange things happen, particularly at the end. The importance of suffering. The one constant in Pericles' life is suffering. He has to endure the loss of everything. And remember Boethius' comment with respect to all these things, the relationship between fortune and suffering. Um, make a virtue of necessity, no matter what happens, it's intended to be a trial to see who we are, where we are, our faith, our love, our trust, you know, all these things. Now let me go back just for a second before I, I go through the um, play, because I want to look at some passages with you guys. But um, any thoughts on the sexual or the father-daughter theme, why it's so important to Shakespeare? 
It's not a small thing for him. He goes back to it again and again and again. The father-son relationship, the mother-son relationship is particularly important in Shakespeare. But I think he, generally speaking, I think it's fair to say he gives much more importance to the father-daughter relationship. Any, anybody have thoughts on that from the plays that you know? Fred, go ahead. Did you? Uh, I didn't raise my hand, no. But oh, I, I haven't. I mean, for me, it seems like the daughter, the character of the daughter, is a re is a reflection of the character of the father in many cases. That's not so. The son. Well, you just asked me about fathers and daughters, so I'm just I'm going back to the different plays, and I'm looking at the father and the daughter, and in many cases, um, the daughter seems to be a reflect. Her character seems to be a reflection of the true character of the father. But I'm I'm puzzled. But what do you I mean? What's the difference between a son is a reflection of the father than the girl, the daughter? Talking about specific plays, not um, Eric. I, I'm not really trying to draw a comparison there. I'm just merely answering the question. <laughs> yeah. He's trying to answer your question, and you're giving him another question. That's Does that answer it? That answers your question. Go ahead, ask another one. I don't have another one. <laughs> Somebody help me out here. There's, I'm. It, it seems to me there's something going on. Is a reflection of. I, the I'm not really trying to. I'm, I'm not really trying to make a comparison between. The father and, and the son, and the, and the father and the daughter. I'm just saying that it seems to me that Shakespeare reflects the true character of the father, father and the, the daughter. character yeah. of the daughter. Yeah. Karen, you have a thought on that? I guess the question I'm going to hear, or implied in the first, is that there seems to be something in a woman as a woman that's given greater importance through this relationship. I mean, stop and think about this just for a second. In a monarchy, the, the throne typically, traditionally, passes through the son, the oldest son. So his import it's Jewish. I mean, we, we even, even in the uh, reading this morning, you know, the judges bring out the woman in adultery. They don't bring out a man. There had to be a man involved in the adultery. The woman was going to be executed, stoned to death. The line went through the male, so the, the source of authority, the ground of authority, went through her or him. In Shakespeare's plays, he's dealing a lot with the father-daughter relationship, um, and in a way that throws a real light at everything that happens in the regime. So many of the plays, I, I didn't pick them for that reason, but it seems to me it's one of the interesting things we've been looking at. I'm just wondering if anybody has any thoughts about it. Tracy? I'm wondering, Helena, Portia, so I mean, um, the central figures in the comedies, except for one, except for Taming of the Shrew, the central figures in the comedies are women. Helena, Portia, um, wouldn't call Pericles a comedy, but Marina's crucial, so is Thaisa and everything that happens. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. 
Okay, let's, any, any questions about the plot or opening of the play before we look at some of the lines? Let's start. Can you turn to the opening? Um, Shakespeare's doing something in Pericles that he does rarely. He has a narrator in Henry the Fifth, if I remember correctly. Um, and there's a brief um, narrator in Winter's Tale, if I remember correctly, who, um, who who has to explain a transition in time for a moment. But in Pericles, he has a narrator, a, a figure called um, Gower, who's a, who is an actual historical figure, who lived centuries earlier, who comes to present the play. So we get it through him. It begins. I want to I want to read a few lines from the opening, but but um, but I'm a, I'm afraid if I don't do something, we're going to lose an important sense of what's going on here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read just a few lines from the opening. He sets the stage by saying that Pericles has gone to Antioch to, um, to, to undergo this ordeal. Remember the ordeal is when knights enter a list and go against each other to see who's going to be a champion, except in this case it's for the hand of Antiochus's daughter. And he begins, to sing a song that old was sung from ashes ancient gower is come, assuming man's infirmities to glad your ear and please your eyes. It hath been sung at festivals on ember ells and holy ales. It goes on. The opening <coughs> misses a little bit in my mind, and, and I don't think we can pick it up until um, Act 3. So if you could turn to Act 3 for a second. Act 3, um, Scene 1. It's the opening scene. <coughs> Because in this one, the medieval voice two centuries earlier is more explicit. Now, sleep is like at hath the root, no dim but snodas the hath the boot, made louder by the o'erfed breast of this most pompous marriage faced. The cat with iron of burning coal now couches for the mouse's hole, and crickets sing at the overer's mouth, air the blither for their drouth. I don't think I did that very well, but it's, but it's, I meant that to suggest it because it's clear that Shakespeare is using a language that's um, archaic, it's out of date. Um, so the chorus begins by setting the stage, and um, we've got to ask why. Anybody want to offer a thought on that before we go on? Why would Shakespeare introduce or have a play presented to us by an actual historical figure who lived centuries before. And speaking in an archaic language. I tried to give some sense of it in that third act. Of, um, He's not speaking in an archaic language huh? in the first act. Sorry? 
He's not speaking in an archaic. It, it's a little bit, Doc, but it's not as much. It's not as obvious. Any thoughts why he would do that? Maybe it has something to do with the the past, you know, carrying forward or some kind of, like, what am I trying to say? Um, you know, well, what it brings to mind is the world was created before the world kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, I understood you until that. The world was created. Say that again, what you just said. Oh, like the, I, see, I don't know. No, 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 no. You come, you come back. <laughs> um, what is it? The, um, I guess maybe it's Jesus that was created before the time, before oh, time. Oh, you know? oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that comes to mind, but also every, you always, every class almost you say this, the past being carried forward. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously he knew centuries before that this, it's like a foretelling, right? Mm, yeah, interesting, yeah. Now, I like your analogy with Christ um, when he's talking about his relationship to David, who came before him, but Christ said, I am before, you know, that, no, that's good, Tracy. Everybody keep that in mind as you read, will you? Because um, there, we're going to have this still point moment late in the play when, um, Pericles has this vision and everything that he lost or thought he lost is going to be returned to him. So it's interesting to me that we've got Gower playing this role, that he's actually alive and present. So the past is living now. We've been talking a lot, well, hopefully, I hope not too much, but it seems to me that's certainly an aspect of Lear. You know, I ask, why did Shakespeare go back nine, nine centuries before Christ? And it seems to me one of the, he makes that ancient time in England present, you know, and shows something Christian at work at it too. So he has this powerful sense, you know, it's reinforced with Boethius. God is always present and at work. Do we see him? Do we have the eyes to see him? And here we've got a man um, um, two centuries older. Um, speaking to us. He sets the stage and um, Pericles presents himself um, to Antiochus and we get these descriptions of, per um, of, of Antiochus's daughter. Act 1, scene 1, about line 10, 12 or so. See where she comes, apparelled like the spring, graces her subjects, and her thoughts the king of every virtue gives a renown to men. Her face the book of praises, Wears red, nothing but curious pleasures, as from thence sorrow were ever raised, and testy wrath could never be her mild companion. Can it be any clearer, the theme of appearances and reality? I mean, go back to my comment. I, there, it, there has to be an understated pride like Oedipus's. Oedipus had this great mind. He solved the, the riddle of the, the Sphinx and was made king. Pericles is here coming to solve a riddle and he looks at this woman and she's extraordinarily beautiful in this moment. In the next moment he's going to discover something that her appearances give no indication of. Behind her beauty is this extraordinarily foul creature. So at the opening scene we, we, we can't see it presented any more clearly this distinction between appearances and reality and how easily people are taken in.
Okay. Go on down a few lines, about line 28. Before thee stands this fair Hesperides, with golden fruit, but dangerous to be touched. For death-like dragons here fright thee hard, her face like heaven enticeth thee to view her countless glory, which desert, desert must gain, and which without desert, because thine eye presumes to reach, all the whole heap must die. Yon sometime famous princes, like thyself, drawn by report, adventurous by desire, tell thee, with speechless tongues and semblance pale, that without covering save yon field of stars, here they stand, martyrs slain in Cupid's wars. This is Dante's siren, too. You remember, when Dante first saw the siren, he started looking at her, and the longer he looked at her, the more he opened her mouth, the more she sang. It became impossible for him to turn away. That the source of evil is from our own desires. That we want things too much, and we make things greater than they are. So here he is looking at this extraordinary, beautiful woman. Um, the king, Antiochus, is warning him. Pericles, Antiochus, I thank thee who hath taught my frail mortality to know itself. Can anybody hear an irony in that? I thank thee who hath taught my frail morality to know itself, and by thou fear for objects to prepare this body like to them, to what I must. Nobody hear an irony there? It's like he's acknowledging that he's been properly taught about his mortality and his he's going to go through this anyway I mean my goodness she's beautiful well, this is what's so stunning I mean she's got to be extremely beautiful this is so I can't say funny it's not the word but the ironies to me are extraordinary so he's presented with the riddle line 65 or so like a bold <laughs> I can't hear this stuff without shaking my head like a bold champion I assume the list. <laughs> what makes this so hard, he's not like Lear. We don't get thunder. We don't get, you know, titanic lines. He, he's, in so many ways, he's so understated. But it just seems to me you can't miss the hubris. It's so subtle, it's so quiet, but it's there. He's going to risk his life, and now we're going to get this poem. Like a bold champion, I assume the list. Nor ask advice of any other thought. But faithfulness and courage, that's, that's all he needs. The riddle. I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh which did me breed. I sought a husband in which labor I found that kindness in a father. He's father, son, and husband mild. I mother, wife, and yet his child. How they may be, and yet in two, as you will live, resolve it you. Sharp physic is the last, but oh, you powers that gives heaven countless eyes to view men's actions. Why cloud they not their sights perpetually? If this be true, which makes me pale to read it, fair glass of light, I loved you and could still, were not this glorious casket stored with ill. He immediately sees. He is clearly an intelligent man. He's a bright, bright man. He immediately sees the meaning, the meaning. And we wonder, I mean, I don't know, you know, all the heads on the, on the palisade there, whatever, all these skulls of men who have lost their heads. Um, for those of you who remember Merchant of Venice, 
you remember that the three suitors had to come, that Portia's head was in a casket, in a little thing, and um, they were filled with skulls, death warnings, except for one of them. And all these men would go through this ordeal, and those who lost could never marry. They couldn't tell anybody, and they could never marry. So those who lost had to go away. And So there are these test scenes, and every one of them, those men, two of them, read by their eyes, Cupid's beauty, the beauty of a woman. It was only um, Bassanio? Bassanio, who read correctly, um, and who had Portia's help, you know, giving him keys about what to be careful of. Remember, fancies, fancy, what fancy breeds, that is, desires that are excessive. We get that in Shakespeare, we got it in Dante's The um, Siren. So the dangers that men face in the beauty that's made present to the, to the eyes and the desires that that beauty awakens in them is constantly dangerous and sometimes fatal. Okay. What's the riddle mean? He's father, son, and husband mild, I mother, wife, and yet his child. I'm no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh. So this is a descript so this is a description of the woman whose beauty has just been described so well. I sought a husband in which labor I found that kindness in a father. He's father, son. How, how can that be? What's the answer to the riddle? How is um, her father a husband and a child at the same time? And how, by virtue of that relationship, she um, um, a wife and a mother, not just a daughter? Can anybody explain that? Does everybody, did everybody understand it? Carl, come on. Do you get it? Did you get it? I don't know if you were saying something to Jeannie. Did you? Maybe I'm not understanding your question, but unless she is his wife, he cannot do the other things simultaneously. Well, that's the puzzle is that it's 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 describing her. I'm no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh. Um, she hot she sought a husband. These men come to woo her as a husband. In which labor I found that kindness in a father. So she's daughter to Antiochus, but at the same time she's also um, he's also um, a son and husband. And by virtue of that fact, she herself is not just a daughter, she's a mother and a wife. So what's the riddle saying? Is everybody clear? Fred, do you have it? Go ahead. I, I just think it's describing the relationship that the king has with his daughter, which is incestuous, so they're playing all three roles to each other. Yeah, I think being a a, a, a wife. Let's see, a wife would be clear, right? If she's married to him, she's a wife. How is she a daughter, 
And if Antiochus is both a father and a husband, how is he a son? I think that's the one that catches. How is she, how is she a daughter and how is he a son? She is his daughter. I, I think, I, I just think, well, for him and I guess then they're by definition vice versa, she's, a, she's essentially playing all three roles. I mean, she is the daughter, but there's an incestuous relationship, so she's being the wife. And I think, you know, he also is, you know, childish to some extent, and she's she's playing the mother. Mother, right. And so by definition, you know, he's he's playing the counterpart roles. Right. Zach, Mark, go ahead. Okay, sorry I'm late. It's no, no, that's okay. Week Glad you're here. So it's good to see you. Yeah. Um, I have a question about this, right? It's about evidently, you know, the incestuous relationship. But is the riddle that she's giving for him to solve spill the family secret? And if so, why would she make that the riddle? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Can anybody explain that? Arrogance. Well, I, I mean, isn't the riddle made by the king and the purpose that he does it is to keep, to not let, he doesn't want anybody to suffice. So he, he presents himself as presenting his daughter to the world. It's a coming yeah. out. And these men come. Um, and obviously lots of them don't get it and die or you wouldn't have all these heads. Either that or they can't explain it because it's going to, cost their heads anyway. That's what happens to Pericles. Um, I think that's the direct answer to that. But I want to go back. Is everybody clear? If she's his daughter and he he has sex with her, that makes her um, his wife. She's a wife and a daughter. And by virtue of being his wife, she's also mother to herself. And if that's true, the same roles apply to him. That he's both her father, naturally, because he bore her. He's also a husband, and by virtue of that fact, he makes himself a son to himself, the way she makes herself a mother to herself, a daughter, a, a mother to herself. So it creates those um, twisted relationships by virtue of that incestuous relationship. Tracy? I'm... I'm I'm, I'm following you. <laughs> You're not looking. I know. Is everybody okay on that? Jackler? Okay. Okay. Thank you for helping me figure out she's her own mother. Yeah. Is otherwise, that, I was thinking she's mothering him as no, no. a caretaker. Is everybody clear? She's daughter, but by virtue of marrying him, that makes her mother to herself. And, con and the opposite... It does the same for him, the counterparty relationships. Mark, go ahead. <laughs> Question. Okay, you say, okay, so, actually, I know what you're saying and what they think is true, but she is his daughter, and even though they're having this incestuous relationship, she's not her own mother. I mean, you can say it all day long, but it ain't true. Is this a, they're just wanting to believe this for the effect in the play to make it all flow together real nice, or... Well, they have to make the riddle a good riddle. Wait, hold on. I'm going to take Mark's question really seriously, because I... 
you know, we, we Look, think... I mean... No, 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 here. We think... We, the word incest, we use it and it immediately puts people in categories. You know? So they have an incestuous relationship. They have, to take Mark's question seriously, what are the implications of that? I'm really talking seriously. Psychologically, what are the implications of entering into an incestuous relationship? A daughter to her father. A father to his daughter. What are the psychological ramifications, implications of that act? How do they play out? What they, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry, because this is so good. I'm glad, Mark. In so many of the plays that we've been dealing with for the last six months, we've been talking about this God's order. C.S. Lewis, the Tao, the way, that there is this way. We went to it directly in Lear because there's a nature. Edmund says there is not. And lots of the characters say, you can do whatever you want. If there's an, a nature, when people try to escape that nature or avoid it, or treat it as if it didn't have laws... What are the implications? So I want to take this opening that Mark's given, because I think it's a really good question. We can say it's just incest. My question is, what, what are the psychological implications of that, living it out in a person's life? Nothing. If there's a law written in our hearts, there's this logos, this Tao, the way, the trunk, and people play with it, break the law, do things in secret. Um, is it going to play out? Will it have effects on their lives? The interesting thing about this riddle is, is that it's saying that there are these implications, that if she, if she goes to bed with her father, it makes her his wife. And if that's so, um, she becomes daughter to herself by implication. Is that just a technical legality, or are there real implications? And in terms of the play, will they play out? Will they play out in a regime? If we lived in a regime in which incest were legalized, sodomy legalized, are there any implications to it, or does it matter? Just let it go. I think it's a really good question. Tracy, go ahead. You're shaking your. Well. It's a mind bender, but if she had children, if she and her father in this incestuous relationship had a child, she would be that child's mother, but also that child's sister. And that's where the mother thing comes in, Mark. That's good, Tracy. No, no, I know what they're saying, but it's still not true. And, 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 and it's just What's not true? What's not true? She's not her own mother. Well, Period. She had a mother. She was born of another woman. Now, she can pretend in her head that's all true and well and good, but it's not. Tracy, go ahead. Would we you know that song, I'm My Own Grandpa? Say again? There's a song, I'm My Own Grandpa. <laughs> oh, wow. No, I don't know. I was thinking about that, too. Yeah. Because yeah. the poetic part and the confusion psychologically just kind of lead you into that weird space yeah. of I am this definition but I'm also this definition. Yeah. Wait, I want to I want to take a second then I don't want to I, I don't want to hold us up here but we know that there are um, psychological disorders. One of them is schizophrenia. You know that somebody can have a fear so great that he he will live schizophrenic believing people are after him. So if you're dealing with a let's say you were dealing with schizophrenic, 
and he said, there's this guy chasing me all the time. And you say to him, but he's not. And he says, look at that guy right there. Um, and you say to him, he's not, even, he's not even looking at you. What's the schizophrenic's answer going to be? He's going to say, of course he's, he's not... not of course he's not looking at But he's at a nut job. It's still not true. Wait, Mark, would you... Hold yourself for two minutes. Mark, hold yourself. Sit on yourself for a minute. You're asking a question and some of us are trying to answer you. If you say to that schizophrenic, he's not even looking at you. Schizophrenic's going to say, of course he does because he doesn't want anybody to know. Once you get inside their head, they're not, they're not going to lack reasons for whatever they do. That's, the, that's part of the definition of, a, of, a, of somebody mad. Um, they use reason, they just get in a narrower world. And so they, they're not going to stop using reason, they're going to use it in a much narrower way. Now there's a difference between somebody who's schizophrenic, who's just in his mind, or let me ask this question, is there no difference between somebody who's schizophrenic and somebody who's entered into um, an incestuous relationship? Mark, let me just ask you to hold on for Tracy, you pick it up here. Is there no difference between the schizophrenic who's just in his head, there's no basis in reality, and somebody who's incestuous because in an incestuous relationship, the implication is you're going against reality in your very nature. And I thought you were touching on it really well. Does that not have psychological implication? It's not taking away the fact that if you're um, Antiochus's daughter, you're not your own mother, but if you have sex with him, and I'm so glad you did what you did, I mean that was pretty amazing, and you produce a daughter, you know, then you're going to have, you're going to be the mother to that daughter, and you're going to be sister. Are there no implications to the actions that we do that go against our nature? Tracy, I thought you had a, go ahead. I think that in the case of the incest um, it, I don't know what the right word, alters your identity, um, because you're do, you're carrying out something in reality, whereas the schizophrenic, as you say, is in their mind, something that they've imagined, and while it's reasonable, um, it's not being carried out per se, like physically, and so I think that when you go against your nature in that physical way, you must be Change or compromising your identity, maybe. Yeah, I, um, Mark. Let me just offer one more thought, and then you can pick it up for a minute if you'd like. I don't follow this stuff much. I, Suzanne's much closer to this stuff. She 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 stays much closer, so she's so much better informed than I am in this thing. But we know that a lot of there's a lot of transsexual stuff going on with people having sex changes, and we know that so much of it, or a lot, or I guess all of it, is contrary to our nature because male and female have different DNAs. That's a scientific fact, and we know that there are studies coming out that show that people who are who undergo sex changes are often left with negative effects from the changes. And I mean exactly in those terms: a loss of identity. They don't know who they are. They're scrambled. Um, it's just a serious question whether there isn't... The question that I'm raising here in connection with your question, Mark, is when you... It's not just a verbal thing. When you go against your nature, when, when you sin, when any of us sin sexually, or whatever it is, um, adultery, 
whenever you go against our nature and something lawful in our nature, I'm not aware ever that there aren't implications emotionally, psychologically, for all of us. We're all, um, we all feel bad when we do something we're not supposed to do. Um, it's against our nature. And it seems to me it's more serious with something like adultery or incest. Because we've got it here. But Mark, you go ahead, because I'm, I'm going to go on, but if you have so, a... Okay, well, so if I'm understanding correctly, her saying this and her belief in this is just kind of fact that she's nuts. <laughs> no, wait, Mark, I can't, I can't go into this other, farther than the text will allow me. All I know is this. We know from the text that Antiochus loves his daughter... You know, I, I, can, I, I believe there are actual relationships like this. With and today, the child abuse thing is not small. Here's a father who's had sex with a beautiful young woman. I don't know what her response to it is. What we do know is that he uses this as a blind to keep her for himself. So he's not only incestuous, he's selfish. He's, what it does for him as a ruler, he's, he's killing people to justify what he's doing. They're not solving the riddle. Pericles has seen it, and he's going to flee. I don't think it's the girl. We don't, we don't know about the girl. She may love the father. She may want to stay. We don't know. What we do know is this is his riddle that he presents to wooers for his daughter's hand. We get a counterpart to this in Pentapolis, um, uh, Pentapolis when... Um, we're going to get there in a second, when Pericles washes up on that shore and all those men woo for Thyessa. They, they do the same thing. They're going through an ordeal. The difference is, and it's clear, and it sets up one of the dynamics of the play, what they're doing is honorable. In fact, everybody makes that clear. After he wins the jousting, the other knights praise him. As a matter of, we're going to talk about this as a matter of honor. Here, we've got a parody a father's offering his daughter in marriage when he's doing everything he can to possess her. So we're, we're learning lots of things about this ruler. His possessiveness, his selfishness, he's using his daughter, he's killing people. He's got power, enough power to make Pericles feel threatened so that when Pericles goes home, he says to Helicanus, I've got to leave because he doesn't want Antiochus coming and destroying his people. So Shakespeare is showing something vicious in this ruler and um, the way in which he uses his family. His, in this case, it's his daughter. And, and I think, maybe more important, the, the, the power of lust, what it can do to a man. We, saw, we just saw it in Lear and Gloucester. We're seeing it again here. If I can, let me go on. Or, can we go on, or Mark, do you, you okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Pericles goes home and tells Helicanus that he has to leave and asks him to rule um, in time for a while. On, on, in Act 1, Scene 2, at the very end, Tyre I now look from thee, then to um, Tharsis, intend my travel where, I, where I'll hear thee. He sets off to go to Tharsis on um, Act 1, Scene 4. We get to Tharsis, 
and we're introduced to a very different regime with Cleon and Dionysa. About line, Act 1, Scene 4, line 19 or so. This Tharsis o'er which I have the government, a city on whom plenty held full hand, for riches strewed herself even in her streets, whose towers bore heads so high they kissed the clouds, and stranger ne'er beheld but wondered at, whose men and dames so jetted and adorned like one another's glass to trim them by. Their tables were stored full to glad the sight, and not so much to feed as on delight. All poverty was scorn and pride so great, the name of help grew odious to repeat. Now hold on for a second. Is it Act 1, Scene 4? But see now what heavens can do. By this our change, those mouths who but of late earth, sea, and air were all too little to content and please, although they gave their creatures in abundance, as houses are defiled for want of use, they are now starved for want of exercise. Those pallets who, not yet two savers younger, must have inventions to delight and taste, would now be glad of bread and beg for it. Those mothers who to nuzzle up their babes thought not too curious are ready now to eat those little darlings whom they loved. Okay, what do we know, what can we say about Tharsis as a regime? You know that Pericles is going to arrive in just a minute and um, um, Cleon's response is going to be things are already bad enough, now we're going to have you know, we've got bad news everywhere, more bad. And he learns that, as a matter of fact, Pericles is bringing food. And um, the food that he supplies him with is going to save the city. So um, Cleon and Dionysia will be in debt to him. And it's from here that um, Pericles will set off again. Um, and something will happen to him again. But here, just, just let's stop for a second. What can we say about Tharsis as a regime? Just bad fortune? I don't know. Does it say? Is this just misfortune, bad fortune, or um, for riches strewed himself even in the streets whose towers bore heads so high they kissed the clouds and strangers ne'er beheld but wondered at whose men and dames so jetted and adorned like one another's glass to trim by. These tables were stored full, glad to the sight, not so much to feed as delight. Nobody. They've fallen. Say? They've fallen from yeah. riches in the streets to begging for bread and begging for bread. Yeah, I mean, but, they had, uh, right? Yeah, yes. But was their fall the result of something in them, or did it just happen? Well, it says, all poverty was scorned and pride so great, the name of help grew odious to repeat. They didn't ask for help. They were too yeah. themselves. Don't yeah. you? I mean, I think about it. I mean, here, America. It scares me to think about it. 
Here's a country that is so sufficient in itself, so capable. Is it doing anything that it should to be careful of itself? You know, we've got that image in the Bible of what is it, seven years of plenty and seven years of famish or poverty or. It just seems to me what, what Shakespeare is showing us here is a regime too full of itself, far too proud, far too arrogant, living delight, once again their desires, satisfying their desires everywhere, and, um, and they've lost it all. And I don't think it's because it was taken away. I, there's no sense that I have of them that they did anything to take care of what they had. They were too full of themselves. Um, oh, let those cities of Plenty's cup and her prosperity so largely taste with their superfluous riots bear these tears. The misery of Tarsus may be theirs. Um, it seems to me one of the th interesting things to, to, that support this question of whether or not they, they weren't too proud of their finances and their economical success, when Tarsus, when... Um, when Pericles and Thaisa marry and they have a child, they're going to bring the child here and ask Cleon and Dionysia to watch her. And when their daughter grows up, they become envious of um, Marina's superior qualities and um, they give her to a guy to kill her. So they're full of envy and pride as people. These are the rulers and we're watching a regime go down. So here in the opening, we've got two regimes, two regimes. In Tyre, Hel Helicanus shows himself to be um, a worthy ruler. He, he rules well in um, Pericles' absence. Um, in um, Act 1, Scene 2, there's this long conversation between the two. I don't want to go to it, but Helicanus is like Kent. He's ready to serve, he's humble, um, he does a good job when Pericles is gone. When Pericles is gone for a long time, the lords come to him and ask him to, um, to take on the responsibilities of being a king. And he says, no, he won't. And he makes this agreement with the men that they have a year in which to... Um, find Pericles, and if they don't find him, he says, then I'll become king. So he's doing everything he can to protect his king, and he's doing everything he can to protect the goodness of the rulers. In Act 2, Scene 5, when they meet with him, um, Helicanus says, Try honor's cause, forbear your sufferings. If that you love Prince Pericles, forbear, take I your wish. I leap into the seas where hourly trouble for men. He says, do all you can. The lords agree to do that, and Helicanus says, When you love us, we you, and we'll clasp hands. When peers thus knit, when we stay together, a kingdom ever stands. The basis of that stability is honor, not wealth. Okay, let's pick up where... Um, Antiochus sends Thaliard... Um, to Tyre to kill Pericles, Act 1, Scene 3. And um, Helicanus tells 
Tailyard that he's gone. This is the very end of Act 3. We have no reason to desire it. Commend to our master, not to us. Yet ere you shall depart, this we desire. As friends to Antioch, we may feast entire. <clears throat> That's a stunning phrase. He knows this man's there to kill him. He knows Antiochus is after him. He tells him he's gone. And what does he do? He invites him to dinner to keep peace between these two countries while the king's away. So we're getting a good sense of rulers, servants, the character of regimes. We've seen Tyre and now Tharsis. Now go, let's go to um, Act 2, Scene 1. Pericles is at sea again, and a storm comes up and destroys his ship. Act 2, Scene 1. Yet cease your ire, you angry stars of heaven, wind, rain, and thunder. Remember, earthly man is but a substance, but, but yield to you. Wonderful line. We are meant to take a measure of ourselves next to nature. Nature rules. And I, as, my, um, as fits my nature, to do obey you. Alas, the seas has cast me on the rocks. He's thrown ashore. This is Pen, um, um, Pentapolis. And um, he's greeted, met by these fishermen. Now take a look at what we get here because Shakespeare knows his regimes and we're going to get two sides of a regime here. He meets the lowly, the fishermen. Um, um, Act one, Act two, scene one. First fisherman, he sees this man wash up on shore. What ho, pitch, pilch! Ah, come and bring away the nets. What? Patch breed, I say. What say you, master? Look now, thou stirrest now. Come away, or I'll fetch thee with a winion. It's a thread, I think. Faith, master, I'm thinking of the poor men that were cast away before us, because they're recalling seeing the ship go down. Master, I marvel how the fishes live in the sea. Why, as men do a land, the great ones eat up the little ones. I can compare our rich masters to nothing so fitly as to a whale. They know that men die often because of what their leaders do. They just eat them up. So it's a principle of nature. Self-preservation applies everywhere. The great ones eat up the little ones. I can compare our rich masters to nothing so fitly as a whale. A plays and tumbles, driving the poor fry before him, and at last devours them all at a mouthful. Such whales have I heard on the land who never leave gaping till they've swallowed the whole parish, church steeple, bells and all. Pericles watches him and listens. He says, a pretty moral. He's, he's seen a wisdom, a, a common sense sort of wisdom in these men. But master, if I'd been the sexton, <laughs> so the whale had eaten him, I would have been that day in the belfry. Why, man? Because he should have swallowed me too. And when I had been in his belly, I would have kept such a jangling of the bells, should never have left until he cast bells, steeple, church, and parish up again. But if the good king Simoniades um, were of my mind, we would purge the land of these drones that robbed the bee of her honey. So these men have a very common sense approach to life, but they seem to have this basic sense of honor that the big ones swallowed the, um, the small ones. If he had been caught up, <laughs> he would have done everything he could to make the whale upset with him, to belch him out.
Pericles learns that there's going to be this tournament for the daughter of the king. So here we've got the counterpart to the opening. Um, um, they supply him um, with things that he needs on Act 2, Scene 1, about 114. And armor, friends, I pray you let me see it. Thanks, fortune, yet, that after all thy crosses thou givest me somewhat to repair myself. And though it was mine own part of my heritage, which my dead father did bequeath to me with his strict charge, even as he left his life, keep it, my Pericles. It hath been a shield twixt me and death, and pointed to this brace. For that it saved me, keep it, like the necessity that which the gods protect thee from may defend thee. It kept where I kept, so I dearly loved it, till the rough seas that spares not any man took it in rage, though calmed have given again. I thank thee for it. My shipwrecks now no ill, since I have my father's gave in his will. I have my father gave. So he's received something of his inheritance, but he's also acknowledging fortune, the good fortune he's just experienced, and thanks um, the sea's fortune itself. He will take that and go to the um, jousts and present himself. I want to try to do this quickly if I can here. He defeats the men, so he's he's earned the right to have Thais's hand in marriage. And we know before the um, joust, this is Act 2, Scene 2, the knights are presenting themselves to the king, and the king says, Return them, we are ready, and our daughter, in honor of whose birth, these trumpets, these triumphs are, sits here like beauty's child, whom nature gat for men to see, and seeing wonder at. Thaisa, it pleaseth you, my royal father, to express my commendations great, whose merits less, for her to see, who's better and not so good among the men. It's fit it should be so, for princes are a model which heaven makes like to itself, as jewels lose their glory if neglected. So princes their renowns if not respected, tis now your honor, daughter, to entertain the labor of each knight in his device. He's making it clear that nobility has to be tested. It has to be worked. If, it, if, if people take it for granted, if neglected, it won't remain healthy. Um... Theasa, which to preserve mine honor I'll perform. So the king's offering his daughter, she's gladly offering herself with the understanding that it's what's going to decide it is the honor among these men, however they conduct themselves in this tournament. So they show themselves, the men fight, Pericles wins. On act, in act 2, scene 3, the king presents the wreath to Pericles. Thaisa, but you, my knight and guest, to whom this wreath of victory I give and crown you king of this day's happiness. Pericles, tis more by fortune, lady, than by merit. Call it what you will, the day is yours. And here I hope is none that it, uh, envies it. In framing an artist, art has thus decreed to make some good, but others to exceed. Some men will be better than others, some less. Um, Pericles is off a little bit by himself, as if he isn't gloating or relishing the moment. 
The king says about line 20 or so, Your presence glads our days, honors we love. For who hates honor hates the gods above. Marshal, sir, yonder is your place. Pericles, some others more fit. He, he's reluctant to take a place of honor, to present himself. Knight, contend not, sir. He's just reluctant. He's not being boorish or arrogant. Knight says, Condemn not, sir, for we are gentlemen, have neither in our hearts nor our outward eyes envied the great, nor shall the low despise. You are right, courteous knights. Um, the king is acknowledging the goodness, the rare goodness of this man. Thais is doing the same. Pericles, about line 40, Yon king's to me like my father's picture, which tells me in the glory once he had, was, had Princes sit like stars about his throne, and he the sun for them to reverence. None that beheld him but the lesser lights did veil their crowns to his supremacy. Where now his sons, like a glowworm in the night, the which hath fire in darkness, none in light. Whereby I see that times the king of men, he's both their parent, and he's their grave, and gives them what he will, not what they crave. He sees in the king an image of his father. His father's dead. There's a moment of grieving, aware that what he loses to time, things are being taken away. The king notices that in, and asks Thaisa to go and invite him. Um, about line 60, Oh, attend my daughter. Princes in this should live like gods above who freely give to everyone that come to honor them. Like a somebody going to God to honor him. And princes not doing so are like to gnats, which make a sound but killed are wondered at. Therefore to make his entrance more sweet here, say we drink the standing bowl of wine to him. It's good to honor somebody. Not to honor somebody who's done something good shows too much arrogance, too much pride. So he says to her, about line 80, a gen when she asks who he is, a gentleman of Tyre, my name Pericles, my education been in arms, arts and arms, who looking for adventure in the world was by the rough seas reft of ships and men, and after shipwreck driven upon the shore, they say he thanks your grace, names himself Pericles. She describes him to the king. The king takes pity on him and invites everybody to dance, um, 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 asking everybody not to hold back. In Act 2, Scene 4, we learned that um, um, that um, Cleon and his wife died. They were struck, 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 yeah, str they were struck dead. Antiochus and um, his wife died, struck apparently by God. We go back to... Um, um, Pentapolis, and um, it's at this point that the king learns that his daughter was not going to marry for a year because she'd become so taken with Pericles that she didn't want to marry. And he didn't step forward um, because he felt like he was overstepping his place. When he learns that that's so, um, the king tempts him. This is important, Act 2, Scene 5. And um, Pericles is informed of this letter that she's written. 
And Pericles says, what's here? A letter that she loves the knight of Tyre. Tis the king's subtlety to have my life. He's got Antiochus on his mind. Oh, seek not to entrap me, gracious Lord, a stranger in distress, a gentleman that never aimed so high to love your daughter, um, but bent all the offices to honor her. This is almost an exact contrast to what happened with Antiochus at the beginning. Now think about the changes that he's undergone because he was full of pride and thinking he could, all he had to do is answer this riddle. Here he's one Thyessa and he's cautious and guarded. He thinks the king might be trapping him. Um, he's far more guarded, far more um, um, far more guarded, far more careful than he was before. The king, aware of this, tests him. King, thou hast by which my daughter, and thou art a villain. By the gods I have not, never did thought of mine levy offense, nor did any of my actions yet commence. A deed might gain her love or your displeasure. King, a traitor thou liest, traitor, I traitor, even in his throat, unless it be the king that calls me traitor, I return the lie. The king aside, now by the gods I do applaud his courage. Pericles, my actions are as noble as my thoughts, that never relished of a base descent. I came unto your court for honor's cause, and not to be a rebel to her state. And he that otherwise accounts of me that sword shall prove is honor's enemy. The king embraces him at this point and says, you're yours. And the, um, the um, Pericles and Thais embrace each other, and it's at that point we get a dumb show from Gower showing they've married, they're there for a year, and she's pregnant um, with a child. It's at that point that they will go to sea again, and it, um, to all appearances, um, Theosa dies, and Pericles takes his child, Marina, back to Tharsis um, for the couple to take care of him. Let's stop for a minute. How would you characterize... Um, um, Simonides as a king and Pentapolis as a regime. How is it different from Tyre or um, um, Tharsis? How is he different from Cleon and Dionysia as a leader? Um, What do we find? What's Shakespeare showing us in Pentapolis? <coughs> Jeannie, what do you see? How's it different as a regime? As, the, as, as a ruler, we see the fishermen, we see the knights. What, it it seems, seems to me that... Uh, Everyone in Pentapolis is more honorable um, from the very lowly fishermen right on up to the, through the, the honorable knights right on up to the king. Yeah. Um, they are all respectful of each other and um, willing to uh, accept people regardless of their wealth or... Um, Trappings, I guess. Yeah. Anybody else? Doug? I think the honor is the thing that... Can you, can you all hear Suzanne? I think what Jean is saying, the honor in the regime. 
is what is what stands out. Yeah. Um, but there's maybe the implication is because there's honor, there's also prosperity. I mean, it's a successful mm -hmm. regime. The king is. The fishermen are working. The fishermen are working. Yeah, the people in um, and Tarsus are moaning. I mean, they're not doing anything. It's interesting, but yeah. What's um, anybody else? The knights make it. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. I just um, my phone had cut out when you had said. Here's what Father Flynn used to say about regimes, and then I didn't hear what it was, and I. Uh, I'm not even sure that I can you tell know, you. I just really wanted to hear that because you, you know, you're identifying these differences. Yeah. Um, one of the things that strikes me about the nobles is that they don't envy the stranger. And nothing that um, Pericles does shows any envy or wanting to be better. He, he, he did it for... I should probably ask this as a question. We've all read the Iliad. You know that what's at the center of the Iliad is this kleos, this honor, in the Greek world. At the beginning of the war, everybody's killing everybody else because what determines a man's honor is his outward possessions, his booty, his wealth, how much he's accomplished. And you know, my reading of that work is, it's only when Achilles steps outside of that and accepts his own death that he goes back. It's not for honor, booty, or possessions. Um, is there no difference between the honor that begins the Iliad the honor that come that the that Achilles comes to, and a Christian honor in a Christian world. Because we're not looking at Greek warriors, we're looking at knights. Implicitly, we're in a Christian world. the The question is really going. I mean, the, what what I'm what's behind this question is how do we understand honor in this regime? Because I think what Jeannie said is true that. The, the spirit of honor defines this regime, but how do we define honor as it's shown here? Is it the same honor that characterized the Iliad at the beginning or the honor that Achilles brought to it? Is there something Christian in it? What does honor mean here? It's really important because the whole play is going to turn. The turning point comes now. Pericles is going to marry Thaisa. She loves him. She's, she's, she immediately says she's not going to marry somebody else because she wants, she's so taken by this man. The knights enjoy him. They're going to have a daughter. And Thaisa is going to be thrown overboard. They think she's dead, a burial at sea. And Pericles is going to take uh, Marina uh, back to Tarsus. Um, so... Um, Cleon and um, Dionysia can raise her, and we know that eventually um, Dionysia's um, going to want to take her life out of envy, because Marina is much more beautiful and much more talented than her own daughter. How do we understand honor here in Pentapolis? Francis, <laughs> come on. Yeah. I, we haven't heard from you in two months. Huh? Read it. So. Oh. <laughs> Fred, you go ahead. Do you have? 
it just seems to me that here honor is more in sync with natural law as opposed to say um, in in the ancient readings where honor was more focused on how much booty you had or I guess to some extent the honor that you had on the battlefield but here honor seems to be more in sync with a more natural morality. Yeah. Anybody else? There's Mark, did you have your hand up? It seems to me there's a quality of self-effacement here that makes this I mean it, it's really interesting if you when you read the Iliad you you can't you can't look past the fact that Achilles accepts his death. So there's something self-giving. He, he gives his own life up. Uh, but he does it violently. I mean, he's going to go to battle. What's interesting here is Pericles takes honor so seriously that he speaks up against this king when the king accuses him. Um, and the king admires him. I don't see a violent rage. It's not... It's, it's, it's an honorable anger at his own worth, that there's some goodness in him that he stands up for. And I, I want to point that out because it's interesting because so much of the way he's presented and everything else he does is self-effacing. He holds himself back, he feels the grief of his father's loss, he doesn't want to put himself forward, he doesn't want to embarrass the other knights, he's not trying to show them up. The whole battle was undertaken in a spirit of honor. So I think there's a quality of honor that, that combines a courage to stand up for something, and a quality of self-effacement. I mean, the closest thing that I can get to is Christ. There's a. Um, I'm not sure that that's the best way, but um, um, it, it's it's definitely there um, in the way that he presents himself, and he doesn't push himself on the. He doesn't presume on her. Um, he loves her. Um, he's he's not taking advantage as a king. He only identifies himself because she asks. So we're watching, in a, in a subtle way, we're watching a man change um, from the spirit of presumption, something of kind of understated arrogance, very gifted mind. He, so, he immediately saw the riddle. He understood the implications, the danger of it. We're seeing a regime in the beginning in Antioch that is incestuous, it's inherent in the regime. A king like that is using people. He kills people. Um, Tyre is a good regime. The men are loyal. They're dedicated mm -hmm. to him. Elicanus is a good servant. Pentapolis is a, a really good regime. It produced Thyessa. It's a wonderful queen. These noble knights and these really good fishermen. So we're seeing a variety of people who are happy content what they're doing, and all of them stand up. The fishermen, <laughs> the one guy says, this is what people do, they eat each other up. If, if the whale had eaten me up, <laughs> I would have done everything he could <laughs> to have him spit me up. So th the point I want to make here is in P Pericles, we're watching a man who's defined by patiently enduring what comes. Whatever it is, he can patiently endure something. He knows when to turn away. He also knows when to stand up. It's not Odysseus. We're in a Christian world. 
the, the manner, the nobility, is a different kind. And I think one of the ways to see that is, you know, if, if and it's just by, for, by good fortune here, in turning from Lear, in moving from Lear, which is a tempestuous, titanic, in a word, we're watching a great king um, face awful evils in himself. And here, there's a gentler nobility. It's a different kind of spirituality, a different spirit. We're watching a man endure suffering of every possible kind, going from one regime to another. And while he's doing it, we're learning something about those regimes and problems of ruling, how what rulers do and the effect they have on the people they rule. So it's a very, very different story. Um, but, I, but I don't want to lose this fact. We're watching a man endure who still has the courage to stand up. He's marrying. He's about ready to lose everything that means something to him. So the enduring, the suffering, is not going to stop. It's going to deepen. So when we meet next week, I want to look at what happens with Thaisa, his wife, and uh, and Marina, and actually what Marina what what Marina does, because we're going to pick up another regime in which there are these whorehouses, these brothels, and Marina is going to be sold into slavery, prostitution, sex slave. So the sex theme is going to get explicit again, except she's going to do something amazing. So we're moving towards something extraordinary happening at different parts of the world. Um, all of them turning around this man, Pericles. Okay. Let me stop before. Any questions or comments before we stop? If any of you haven't read the ending, I hope you will read it because what happens, it's just extraordinary. It's just an extraordinary ending. But it has to be seen in the context of this growing action. This man suffering fortune, the turns of fortune, this is Boethius's wheel, um, enduring a lot, having to give up, like Job, having to give up everything. But coming to something no other character in Shakespeare has ever come to. He's going to experience something nobody, nobody has. So it's an amazing ending. No questions or... Jolie, do you have a question? Oh, I will when I get caught up. I just enjoy the dialogue. Okay, you guys. Do read the end of the play. It's a different play. It's so different. It's just a different play. But about Oh, are you guys all right for next Monday? Holy Week? I will actually not be here. I'll be in Fresno for the week, so, but don't let that stop you. Okay, next week. Um, see you guys next week. You, have, you guys have a good week, um, and stay safe, okay? Bye. Oh, gosh, thanks. God.